you have your Bible with you today, I'd ask you to turn with me to uh, Matthew's Gospel. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6, first book of the New Testament. Matthew 6, and we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, and that is right in the middle of Jesus' instructions on the right way to pray. Remember last week he told us that uh, the, the goal of prayer is not to show off. Uh, we don't pray so that we can get man's applause for not doing it and to get man's attention, but rather the goal of prayer is to speak to and communicate with God. Now today Jesus is going to continue his teaching with what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Really it's the model prayer. More accurately, it's the disciples' prayer. And I appreciate that he does this because many times, frankly, I'm kind of slow. Um, and maybe you're like this too. Sometimes I get it if somebody explains what to do. But I learn a lot better if I see an example. And maybe, maybe you can identify with that. If you guys, many of you know I've been in martial arts, been involved in that for several years now. And both when I did Hapkido and now that I'm doing Jiu-Jitsu, um, I find it really helpful when somebody explains what to do and then shows what to do. And sometimes I'm even so slow I learn best when they do it to me. And, um, and I guess I'm kind of glutton for punishment because sometimes it's very uncomfortable. But, but really that's what helps me is when I, when I hear it explained and when I see it. And so what Jesus does is he doesn't just tell us the right way and the wrong way to pray. He, he does that, but then he also gives us an example of what that's going to look like, and he does that in our text today. Now, his example teaches us that we should seek God's glory above all, be obedient to him, trust him for what we need, but also uh, forgive others as we've been forgiven. Now, if you found Matthew chapter 6, I'd ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 9 in just, uh, just a second. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Um, well, we'll back up to verse 8. He says, So do not be like them, the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from, from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Thank you. you may be seated. Now the first thing I want to address is what Jesus says right at the beginning of verse 9. And that is, uh, he says to pray in this way. Praying this way. Now, people all throughout the ages, basically ever since Jesus spoke these words, I think, people have been in kind of a quandary saying, what does Jesus mean? Is, is he saying that we need to repeat the Lord's Prayer? Or is he saying we should use that as a framework and put our own information in, our own requests and things like that? Or is he saying, what, what exactly is he saying? Well, even though people throughout the ages have, have questioned that, I have the answer. Aren't you glad you have such a smart pastor? I have the answer. At least this is, this is my take on it. No doubt there are some uh, people and even some religious groups that insist on repeating just the Lord's Prayer. I believe that this is an example. The, the irony, of course, is that Jesus has just gotten through uh, don't use vain repetition. And many of these groups that say you should just say the Lord's Prayer, they do it 
very repetitiously. And it's ironic to me that they would use a teaching on not praying repetitiously in a repetitious manner. Anyway, I believe this is a model. It's kind of a general outline of what prayer should look like. Because think, if, if this was not an example, every person in the Bible, Old and New Testament, including Jesus himself, got prayer wrong. Because if you think just in the New Testament, think about the other prayers of Jesus. In Luke chapter 11, we have another record of, of Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. Remember in Luke 11, one, the, the reason I remember Luke 11, one, it was from Bible school. And that's been a long time ago. A long, long time ago when I was in Bible school, we made up a little bookmark. And on it, it had part of Luke 11, one, which said, Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples, the, the apostles, they saw Jesus' prayer life, and they were so impressed by it, they said, Lord, we want to know how to pray like that. And so then in the verses following, Jesus gives the model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. The thing is, it's different from Matthew's version. There's not as much stuff in Luke 11. In other places where Jesus prayed, like John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he doesn't say the same things that he said in Luke 11 or Matthew 6. At the graveside of Lazarus in John's Gospel, he doesn't use these words. Nowhere in, in the Scripture, either, either the apostles or Jesus himself, use the Lord's Prayer. So clearly, I think, this is an example. I like the way the old preacher S.M. Lockridge explained it. He said, when I was in school, I learned how to do addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And when they were teaching me those things, they would give me examples to show you how to do it. Now, that's not to say that every number I came across, every problem I had, would be those same numbers. But rather, that's how you work the problem out. And I think that's what Jesus is saying in verse 9. Pray then in this way. Here's the example of showing you what prayer is like. So let's, let's look at, at, the, at the prayer itself. You can break it down different ways. People, people have done it different ways. Uh, one way that I like to break it down, I've, I've seen it done this way. It's broken down into three parts. God's glory, God's authority, and God's mercy. And I want to I break it down that way. First, he says, we need to pray considering God's glory. We need to pray considering His glory. If you look again at verse 9, he starts out his prayer by worshiping, by exalting, by lifting up the Father. Now, of course, every word in, in the prayer is significant, but I want to highlight just a few uh, and, and draw some conclusions from that. The first thing he starts out with is our Father. Our Father. Now, God is not everyone's Father. There's an idea today, and it, there's been this idea around for a long time, that God is everybody's Father. We have the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. Uh, let's just all sit around a campfire and hold hands and sing kumbaya. But listen, only those who have been adopted into God's family are God's children. How are they adopted into God's family? John 1. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, if you accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you, if you are a Christian, if you are saved, then you are God's child. Therefore, we can pray, Our Father. Our Father. He's your Father, if you're a Christian. He's my Father. That means that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't like me, too bad. You're going to be stuck with me for all eternity if you're going to heaven. And you should pray for me, and I should pray for you. Our Father. And notice that he's not some 
cold, distant, faraway sovereign. He's a loving Father. But notice what he says. He says, Our Father who's in heaven. Hmm. How far away is heaven? Long way, right? So does that mean that God's not here, that He's not here in Missouri, that He's not here in New Hope? No. Because as, as Solomon said in, in one of his prayers, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain God. God is everywhere. But when it talks about Him being in heaven, that speaks of His exalted place. He says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. That means we're to hallow God's name. We're to set it apart. We're to see it as holy. There are people today, even people who claim to be Christians, who drag the name of God through the mud, both in their life but also with their lips. I mean, they, they'll, they'll, they'll use God's name in profanity and all sorts of things. Hallowing is the opposite of profaning God's name. We should set it apart. We should see it as holy. We should have some awe of God. We should have some respect for Him. Now, what does this tell us? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that tell us on a personal level? That tells us that part of our prayer life should revolve around the glory of God. It should revolve around the glory of God. In fact, as it stands, that should be our first priority. The glory of God should be the first priority in our prayer life. What is the last concern that he mentions? It starts out with the glory of God. What does he end with? Look at, look at the Bible. What does it say? Okay, interactive preaching. You're all acting like you're zombies. Just staring at me. Let's, let's, let's wake up. He starts out with the glory of God. What's the last thing that he mentions? No. Well, in the, in the doxology, I'm talking about the request. Sorry, should have been more specific. As far as requests go, it ends with our stuff. So it starts with God's glory and it ends with our concerns. That's the reverse of how we pray, isn't it? Because when we pray, what are we concerned with? Oh, Lord, please bless me. Lord, help me. Lord, i got this going on. Please do this. Isn't that what we do? We're so concerned about us, many times we don't even think about the glory of God. And if we do, it's, it's way off in, in, at the end. Oh, and, and God, just uh, bring glory to yourself somehow. For instance, let's say... Let's say you've got a physical difficulty. Maybe somebody you love has a physical difficulty. How's this going to look? What do you do? You say, Lord, please bring healing to them. You ever afraid of that? I have. Lord, please heal them. Please heal me. I've got some problem. Why are you praying it? So you'll be comfortable. So they'll be comfortable. So they won't be in pain anymore. So they're not going to uh, maybe uh, pass away at, a, at, a, at an early age or whatever it is. How often do we pray for their healing, our healing, that God will be glorified in doing it? Almost never, if, if ever. We should pray considering God's glory. That's where Jesus starts, but then he moves on to God's authority. He says, we should pray his kingdom come, his will be done. We need to pray with the kingdom in view. Now, what's the kingdom of God? Well, it's used in different ways in the New Testament, I think, the way... Uh, Jesus is using it here, refers to, to his rule and reign in the hearts of lives and lives of believers. Now there's a parallel idea between your kingdom coming and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
I'm not going to ask you to have a show of hands, but I, because I already know the answer, I don't want anybody to maybe be a, a hypocrite in church. How many times have you prayed for God's will to be done and you not mean it? You ever done that? I bet you have. You pray, Lord, just do your will. And what do you mean? Lord, do my will. What you really mean is not thy will, but mine be done. Instead of not my will, but thine be done, you, you switch it. Now, let's think this through. Jesus, what does he say? He says, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's work through that. He does not say, Lord, please do your will. Now, that is an appropriate prayer because there are some things that are outside of our control. And, and that's what Jesus prayed. You remember in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He doesn't say, Lord, do your will on earth. He says, Lord, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how's it done in heaven? Perfectly. By who? The angels. So, so what are we praying? Lord, I want everything... Okay, how's it done in heaven? God says, Gabriel, I want you to go over there and I want you to do this. What's Gabriel do? He goes over there and does what God says. And then he says, you know what, uh, Michael, I'd like you to go over there and, and work in this area and, and help them out in this way. What does he do? He goes over there and does it. And he says this group of angels, I want you to go down there and I want you to do this. What happens? They go down there and do that. They're doing God's will perfectly. There's obedience. So when Jesus says we should pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what's he saying? He's saying we should pray that everybody, including us, is perfectly obedient to God to do what he wants. Everybody, everywhere, will be perfectly obedient to God. Now let's make this personal. What does that mean for us individually? That means when we pray for God's will to be done, listen, we need to be an answer to our own prayer as much as it's in our power. Let me say that again. When we pray for God's will to be done, we need to be an answer to our own prayer as much as it's in our power. Said another way, we need to be obedient to what God wants us to do. How obedient? Perfectly obedient. On earth as it is in heaven. Now, are you going to do it perfectly? No. That should be your goal. Now, what, what am I saying? Well, let me just ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud, but in your own mind. Are you willing to do what God wants you to do? Are you willing to do it? You say, I don't know. Tell me what he wants me to do first. Then I'll tell you. Wrong. Because listen, if you're not willing to do some of it, you're not willing to do any of it. Because if you say, I want God to do his will, I'm, I'm going to be obedient unless he says do this or that or go over there. I'll bet you're off then. But if it's what I want to do, and that's what God wants me to do, man, we're down. We're, we're good. I'll do what He wants me to do. That's not being obedient. That's doing what you want anyhow. I'm afraid all too often we've said this part of the prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, with no intention of being obedient. We should, we should answer our own prayer. We say, God, I want Your will to be done. He says, okay, do this. I say, okay. I'll do that. So we've, we've, we've prayed. He teaches us to pray with uh, considering God's glory, 
God's authority. And finally, he moves on to the part that we always spend our, the most of our time on, and that's dealing with God's mercy. And first he says, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, when he says that, he's not saying, Father, please make a loaf of bunny bread appear in my kitchen. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, uh, give us the necessities of life. Now, I want you to notice a few things, then we'll draw some conclusions from those. First is daily bread. He doesn't say, give us this day our weekly bread, does he? He doesn't say, give us this day our yearly bread. He says, give us this day our daily bread. What does that tell us? We don't need to be worried about what's going to happen next week, next month, next year, because God's already got taken care of. Daily bread. And you know what? It doesn't, it's not going to help you to worry about what's going to happen next year because you can't change it. Jesus may come back before then. Who knows? So there's an implicit call to faith here. Give us this day our daily bread. You don't have to worry about the future because it doesn't help anything anyhow. But along those same lines, notice he says, give us this day, in verse 11, our daily bread. He'll give us what we need, and many times much of our wants. But Jesus, and, and, and nowhere in the Bible does it guarantee that God's going to give us anything our old sinful heart desires. And that's one, one problem that the Word of Faith movement has, is because it sees God as a means to an end. And if you've ever watched those guys on TV, those hucksters, what they'll sell you is, if you just say all the right things, if you say positive things, if you have enough faith, God's going to be required to give you what you ask and speak in faith. That's nothing more than churchy covetousness. Listen, here's what it is. That's asking God to subsidize your idolatry is what that is. Because what you've done is you've made a God out of your material possessions and your money, and you say, God, you're the means to get this, and I can't do it myself. I want you to give it to me. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, many times God will give us a lot more than what we ask for. But he says, give us this day our daily bread, what we need. He'll give us what we need. But also notice there's a strong dependence on God here because he doesn't say, poor folks, you need to pray that God will give you your daily bread. But rich folks, you got it covered. You can, you can take a little money out of the account and it's fine. Because wealth is fleeting and uncertain. You ever thought you were going to get some money and then you didn't? I have. And it's like, oh, I got this money coming in and I've already spent it in my mind. Some people actually spend it before they get the check. But you, you, you figure it out, I'm going to spend it here and here and here and then that doesn't materialize. Or maybe you, you get some money and you're like, man, I finally, I'm finally going to get ahead. And I can pay off this, and I can do that, and then the car breaks down or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? Money is uncertain. It's fleeting. But God is not. But if, and if, you trust your base, if you base your trust on your money, you're trusting the wrong thing because wealth can disappear overnight. So we need to trust in God no matter what position we're in, whether we're rich or poor or somewhere in between. So he moves from daily bread in, in verse 12 to forgiveness. We need to ask for God's forgiveness. Why? Because we're all sinners. You sin, I sin, we all sin. We've all offended God. Even after we get saved, we still do it. And, and, and notice the qualification that he puts on this in verse 12. This is a terrifying thought for some of us. He says, Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those 
who have sinned against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Wow. What's that saying? Well, verse 14 and 15, 14 and 15, look at what he says. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. What's that say? If you forgive somebody, God will forgive you. If you don't, God won't forgive you. That's pretty plain. Now let me ask you as a Christian, is there somebody in your life that you won't forgive? Now we say, oh, well, no, I wouldn't do something like that. You know, we say that in church. We know deep down in our hearts sometimes that's not the case. We hold a grudge against somebody. Somebody's wronged us in the past, family member, whoever it is. And, and we have this stuff going on, and God says, if you don't forgive them, I'm not going to forgive you. But yet we don't forgive them, and then we still hold on to that. And we still pray and say, God, forgive me for this and for that that I've done. What does Jesus say? You might as well just save your breath. It ain't happening. Say, I don't like it. Well, I don't either. But I, didn't, I didn't write it. This is what Jesus said. Now let me clarify some stuff. Jesus is not saying that you can get saved through forgiving somebody. He's not saying that this is some sort of meritorious work, that if you just forgive somebody that's done this real bad wrong to you, then you'll somehow earn God's forgiveness. He's not saying that if you forgive somebody, God's required to forgive you, and if, you, if, you, if, if they never ask for forgiveness, well, you're just out of luck. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that as a Christian, you have been forgiven much. And just as your sin against God was far greater than anybody's sin against you could ever be. Likewise, because your sin outweighs whatever sin has been done against you, you should forgive others because your sin has been forgiven as a Christian. Paul said this way in Ephesians 4.32. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, if somebody wrongs us and we have been forgiven, what should we do? Forgive them. Because we've experienced it. And if we're not willing to do that, don't expect God to forgive you. And in fact, if we won't forgive you, better make sure you've been forgiven to begin with. Why? Because if you refuse to have a right relationship with people, you will not have a right relationship with God. It will not happen. Now Jesus finishes up uh, in, in uh, verse 13 with this plea to not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now that may bother you a little bit because it seems like Jesus is saying God may somehow cause us to sin. But we have to remember that, that that word temptation is used different ways in different places in the Bible. And and sometimes it does mean to try to get somebody to sin against God. Now that's something the devil does. Jesus or God does not tempt people to do wrong. Now, that is stated explicitly in the Bible, and it doesn't make any sense that God would try to get you to do something wrong against himself. But that word can also mean that God calls us to do something that goes against our nature and what we want. And God does do that. Think about Abraham and Isaac. God sometimes calls, calls us to do something that's against our desires, our nature. 
and he does do that sometimes. So, if temptation here has the first meaning of leading to sin, it would mean that we trust that God has so much authority, so much sovereignty, so much control over everything and everybody, including the devil, that he can keep us from those tempting situations where we would be apt to sin against him. If it means the other, this trial idea, it means that we, we should pray that God doesn't give us trials to go through. And both of those meanings are consistent with the Bible and both are appropriate to pray. And Jesus finishes up with the doxology at the end of verse 13 and in that word, Amen. That word, Amen, it means, let it be. That means I'm in hearty agreement with what you just said. That means I want you to do it. Now I wonder how many of us could truly say amen to the Lord's Prayer. Because what does he say? God, we should be praying about God's glory. We should be praying about his kingdom. We should be praying in obedience. We should be praying forgiving people and asking for forgiveness. We should, we should pray trusting him. Can you say amen to that? Because the application is simple. Seek first God's glory. Be obedient. Trust God. Forgive others. Simple stuff. But not easy stuff, is it? Because each of those things causes us to, to, to trip up in some, in some way. But which one of those is the most lacking in your prayer life? You think about the prayers that you pray. Which one of those things do you not do the most? Do you ever think about God's glory? Do you pray and not really care about obedience? you just want God to do His will? Let Him do it. Let somebody else do it. Well, one thing is lacking in your prayer life, and ask God to help you improve that area, but then don't just trust Him to do it. Also, have some, some involvement too. Commit to do, improving that. So when you're praying and you start out, God, please be with Him, please be with her, and help me, and blah, 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 blah. Say, oh, wait a minute. First, I need to worship a little bit. I need to focus on God's worth. I need to focus on God's glory. And then we, when we do that, many times we start saying, oh, well, how's God helped me in the past? How's God answered this prayer? Oh, I remember when he did that. And thank you, Lord. I, I, you know, I prayed for that for years, and you answered it, and I didn't even say thank you. Thank you, God. Commit to improving your prayer life. Maybe you don't have a prayer life. Maybe the, maybe the place you need to start is simply to pray. I'm not going to tell you how to pray. Jesus already has done that. I'm not going to tell you when to pray. Jesus didn't tell us when. But maybe you just need to pray. Maybe you need to set aside a time that's, that's best for you. And just pray. Doesn't have to be big. Doesn't have to be showy. Doesn't have to be long. Just talk to God. And maybe you don't pray because you're not saved. You don't. You never really cared about God. Maybe you don't have a relationship with Him. But the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that through the blood of Christ, we can be made whole. We can have our sins forgiven by repenting of our sins and, and putting our faith in Him. And if you've never done that, today's the day to do it.